This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Um, The way we teach the Bible here is that we read a passage and just kind of walk through it. So that may be a a different approach than you're familiar with um, in church, perhaps. Uh, But if so, I just want to encourage you to read along because you'll be able to track with what we're talking about uh, a lot more easily if you have that text open in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, um, that's just your, just take that with you. If you don't have one or you have one somewhere, you don't know where it is, just take that. That's our gift uh, to you so that you will have it um, as uh, just a... uh, a memento of your visit with us. How about that? Hopefully it'll be more than that. But uh, anyway, so we are working through uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read this passage. Uh, we're going to cover the first 13 verses, and then uh, I'll pray and we will uh, we'll jump in. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word, and we submit ourselves before it today as those who are in need of instruction, those who are in need of uh, warning, those who are in need of encouragement and good news and strength as well today. So we pray that you would speak to us through this passage. We pray that you would open our eyes and ears, and I pray for any one of us that, that are that are driving close to the edge, that are, uh, that are leaning into danger and risk in our spiritual lives. I pray that you would do a work of rescue today and protect us from ourselves, guard us, and work in us, we pray, Lord, uh, to refresh and to renew and to strengthen. In Jesus' name, amen. 
1986, I, I remember uh, the news of Gordon McDonald. Gordon McDonald was a well-known author and pastor. He was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a ministry on college campuses. And the news had come out that he was resigning uh, from his role uh, because he had committed adultery. Um, that is, he had had sex with someone that was not his wife. And uh, in a book called uh, Rebuilding Your Broken World, he recounted his situation in a most interesting way that really parallels our passage today. He wrote this, For all the talk in the church about sin and misbehavior, we probably do not take the matter of our vulnerability seriously enough. By unconsciously, I'm sorry, excuse me, by unconsciously grading certain misbehaviors as more significant than others, we bypass central biblical doctrines. All are sinners and stand on equal ground at the cross. All are in need of equal amounts of forgiving and restorative grace. All of us are always in danger of the little invaders that enter our airspace and render us to a fallen state. And all of us need to learn more about how to defend when the attacks come. A few years ago, this is prior to his fall, a few years ago I gave a speech at a college commencement. Before the festivities began, a member of that school board sat with me in the president's office. We'd never met before, and we were asking questions of each other that we, might help us get better acquainted. Suddenly, my new friend asked a strange question. I've thought about it many times since then. He said, if Satan were to blow you out of the water, how do you think he would do it? I'm not sure, I answered, all sorts of ways, I suppose, but I know there's one way he wouldn't get me. What's that? He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationships. That's one place where I have no doubt that I'm as strong as you can get. A few years after that conversation, my world broke wide open. A chain of seemingly innocent choices became destructive, and it was my fault. Choice by choice by choice, each easier to make, each becoming gradually darker, and then my world broke in the very area I had predicted I was safe, and my world had to be rebuilt. He goes on to talk about that oftentimes our area of greatest danger is not our weakness, but our strengths, because we perceive ourselves invincible in those areas. And thus he says, I felt like the one area I would never fall was in my relationships and in my marriage in particular, and that's the very area I fell. The passage we're reading about today is about vulnerability. God wants the Corinthians to know that they are all vulnerable for a fall. And that's why after he gives this little history lesson that we will walk through in verse 12, his conclusion is, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's his burden. That's his concern for this church. 
Here's what's been going on in the church in chapters eight and nine, if you weren't here and if you were just by way of reminder. Um, there's been a debate about can you as a Christian eat meat that is offered to idols? And it's a real problem because almost all of the meat sold in the marketplace had been offered to idols. And so there were some in the church called the strong. I mean, that was kind of who they, well, there were some called the, he calls the weak. So by implication, others were strong. They felt free to be able to eat that kind of meat. They were free. It wasn't going to bother them. And really, they didn't really understand why anybody was making a big deal about it. The weak felt like they couldn't eat that meat, that it was, it was against their conscience that it would be a sin. And so he says to the strong, listen, just don't eat meat when you're with them. Uh, because you don't want to lead them into sin, love them. And they think it's a sin. So just, just love them and serve them and care for them. But evidently the strong are in danger because while it's okay to eat meat that had been offered to an idol, it wouldn't be okay to do that in an idol's temple uh, during a worship encounter, a worship service. And, and so he, uh, he is warning them about presumption. Evidently some of them have a presumption. They are presumptuous. We are okay. We are standing fine. And he says, take heed because everyone is vulnerable and you in particular are vulnerable vulnerable with your freedoms, with your freedoms, which are legitimate freedoms, but you are vulnerable in your freedom to go back into idolatry. And so he says we are vulnerable. And then he calls us in this last verse of the passage, he calls us to trust Jesus because while we are vulnerable, he doesn't want that to be the primary message. The primary message is that God is faithful. And so he is saying, don't live presumptuously. Because you are vulnerable to a fall, but realize that God is faithful. And that's the note he sends them out on. So really just two ideas from this passage. One is verses 1 through 12, and the second one is verse 13. The first truth is that we are vulnerable. The second truth is that God is faithful. Paul is bringing, we are vulnerable, he is bringing a warning against an attitude to any Christian that says, I've got this. Whenever you feel any sense of, I've got this, I'm okay here in this area of my Christian life. Whenever you think that kind of idea, you are in danger, perhaps never in greater danger than when you feel like, I've got this, I've got that under control, that's in my past. I don't do that kind of thing anymore and never would. We are all in danger of fault. None of us in the room are above a fall and a tragic fall. How many Christians have I talked to who've fallen tragically and then have said, I never thought I would be here. I never predicted this is what would happen in my life. And we need to hear that story. And, and really what we need to do is not just hear the story of others. We need to read the Bible because what Paul says here is just consider the history of God's people. Just consider Israel, and he takes them back to the Exodus. The Exodus, if you're new to the Bible, is the story of God's people, the people of Israel, who were enslaved by the nation of Egypt. They had absolutely no freedoms. All they were, the entire uh, people, the entire Jewish people were slaves to work for Egypt, to build for Egypt. And it was a terrible life, and they were crying out to God for freedom from enslavement. And so God miraculously delivers them from the most powerful nation in the world to deliver them from Pharaoh and the most powerful nation in the world. It was a miracle. 
And in verses 1 and 2, he, he reminds us that he delivered all of the Israelites. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So he says, look, uh, I, they were all freed. They were all, uh, they were followed the cloud. The cloud, when, when God brought them out of Egypt, he appeared to them in a cloud and led them by cloud during the day to show them where to, the, to go. It was, it was a sign of God's presence with them. And then when they came up to the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptians were pursuing them, God split the Red Sea so that his people walked through the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian army came into the Red Sea to pursue them, the waters went back and drowned all of God's enemies, of Israel's enemies, the Egyptians. And so they were rescued. They were delivered by God. He was present. He saved them. They were led by Moses, who was a deliverer. He was a, he was a prefiguring of Christ. He was a Christ-like figure that delivered God's people. And so Paul says they were baptized into Moses through cloud and sea. What does he mean? Well, he means they had symbols and signs of God's deliverance. The cloud represented God's presence. This parting of the sea represented God's rescue to them. These were signs of salvation. And so he is implying here, listen, you too have signs and symbols of God's deliverance. You were baptized into Christ through the spirit and into water. So they had baptism into a new life of freedom, a life of freedom. You have a baptism. They had signs and symbols of God's deliverance. You have signs and symbols of God's deliverance. Not only did they receive freedom, but God sustained them as well. The Israelites, he provided miraculously manna for them to eat every day in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. He provided water from a rock, which was, Paul says here, Christ providing for them. So he not only delivered them, he sustained them. And he's saying, hey, you're sustained as well. The implication, they had manna and water as signs of God's sustaining power. We have bread and wine as signs of God's sustaining power. That their, their, their sustenance prefigures the Lord's supper. So they had a baptism of sorts. They had a Lord's Supper of sorts like you do. And he says in verse five, nevertheless, I mean, that's all, that should be in all caps. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. All delivered, all followed the cloud, all went through the sea, all ate the manna, all drank the water that God provided. But with most, God was not pleased. They're all delivered from slavery. They all had the same experience. They all identified with the people of God. They were all part of what God was doing with his people. And yet many of them turned and worshiped idols. And so let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. It's a loving warning to the people in Corinth and it's a loving warning to us as well today. If you think you're okay because you have signs of the faith as they did, then you are in danger. 
You may have prayed a prayer at some point to trust Jesus. You may have been baptized. You may receive communion. You may have been active in a church. You may have identified with the people of God, just like all of Israel. You may have identified with the saving power of God, but we are all vulnerable to fall. We, we are not okay. We are not to, to shift into a coasting mode. We are not home free just because we have the trappings of the Christian life, just because you've had Christian membership in a church, just because you've served in a church, just because you've done Christian things, just because young people, you come from a Christian family with Christian parents. That's a blessing, but that is no assurance that you can just coast along. And you're okay because you have a Christian church resume. These people had a resume. They had an experiential resume. They walked through the Red Sea miraculously. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. In verse 6, he's going to tell us why in verses 6 and following. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So all that's recorded about them, it's an example for us to learn. Learn from the example. Learn from the example of Gordon MacDonald that I just read. Learn from your own example of what's happened in your past. Learn from the example you have observed in others. And here, most importantly, learn from the example of scripture, because this is why he gives us this. God loves Israel. He frees them, but most of them don't love and follow him. This is what he's saying. God loves them and works miraculously, but most of them don't love him or follow him in return. Some were idolaters. Look at verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What's he talking about? Well, that's from Exodus 32. And after they had been delivered, Moses is up on the mountain, interacting with God, receiving commandments. The people are waiting on Moses. They get antsy. And so they give all of their gold to Aaron. Aaron's a priest. Aaron makes a golden calf out of it. And they all worship God a golden calf. God has just freed them, but they want something they can see. They want a representation of God. And so they make a golden calf and they eat and they drink before the idol. That's what's happening with some people in Corinth. They're eating and drinking in idol temples. And so they eat and drink, it says, verse seven, in front of the idol, and they rose up to play. The word play is a euphemism for sexual immorality. They got up and they had sex with people that they weren't married to. They ate and drank, likely became drunk, acted like the pagan nations around them, started sleeping with people they weren't married to. That's why in verse 8 he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality because that's what happened. They were sexually immoral. And and, and this is a warning to them. He says, and they were, don't be sexually immoral as some of them were, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. That refers later to Numbers 25, when because of their immorality, God killed 23,000 of them in a day as a judgment. And he goes on to say, well, then how about the time they put Christ to the test and some were destroyed by serpents? Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. What's that all about? Well, later, um, 
as they are out in the wilderness, all the people of God delivered by God, they begin to complain. They begin to complain. They begin to complain about Moses. They begin to complain about God and they begin to charge God. They don't think God will provide water for them. And they are sick of eating the same thing that God provides each day, manna. They're tired of it. And they think it's just over. They don't think they're going to have water. They don't know about the food. And so they just say to God, why, to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? It's a statement about God. Why did you deliver us to bring us out into the desert to just kill us? We could have died back there as slaves such a skewed view of God, such a misunderstanding of the compassionate, loving, saving God that rescued them. They're charging with God with trying to harm them. Why did God deliver them? So that they could come and worship him and be his people and encounter him. Yet they're saying, you didn't bring us out here for our good and your glory. You didn't bring us out here so that we could worship you. You brought us out here to kill us. And God, re- God releases serpents, and, and many of them die that day. Some are saved uh, at, at, from, de- from his deliverance, from his power, by his power. But it's a sign that they, 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 they misunderstand. They reject what God... Well, did, they had a great pedigree. They had been baptized and had communion figuratively. They were church members figuratively. They had tasted the power and the deliverance of God. And now they are accusing God worse than any unbeliever. He goes on to say in, nine, don't, in verse 10, no, don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Listen, if you read the Old Testament, what you will find about Israel is that they are a complaining bunch of people. They grumble. They, another word, murmur. That word's in there. They murmur. They complain. They accuse. They're not satisfied in God. They're not satisfied in what their God has done for them. They forget about the miracle of yesterday or 10 years ago or in the past, they forget all about that and they grumble and they complain. They don't like how God leads them. They don't like God's plan for their life. And so they grumble. And verse six says, all of these serve as warnings. Now look back at verse six. This is so important. All of these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This word is so important, desire, because what Paul is saying is he's not just saying, hey, just avoid bowing down to a gold statue, avoid sleeping around, avoid just, you know, belly aching all the time, just avoid that stuff. He's going deeper than that. He said, these things were shared so that you don't desire evil. That was their problem. It wasn't a statue and it wasn't a complaining mouth. It was the desire of their heart that was the problem. And that's what he says. This this is a warning so that you do not desire, the, the word can be translated craving as well, so that you don't desire and crave something else with an evil desire. Here's the point of what Israel did. Here's the point of the example. They desired something or someone besides God and his plan. They were not satisfied in God. They were not joyful for what God had done. They were not grateful for God. They were not in relationship, close communion with God. And it got so bad that they began to accuse God of things that were completely out of his character. That They began to doubt God. They began to, to look other places 
for sustaining joy, to look other places for their fulfillment, to look other places for their purpose, to look other places to put their trust. They desired something beside God and his plan for them, and that is what sin is always about. Sin is where we go when God is not enough. When God is not enough for me, when his plan, though I do not understand it, and it is difficult, when I cannot trust him and embrace his plan, sin is when I look for something else. Sin is when God is not enough. It's where we turn. It's where we look. It's what we think about. When we have lost our satisfaction in God, when we've lost our enjoyment of God, it's where we go. God did everything for them, but in these moments, he's not enough. And this is what Paul is warning them about. Do not think you are okay because your affections can cool for God. Because your memory of what he has done can grow distant. And when that happens, when your closeness, your fellowship, your nearness, your awareness of God shifts, then all of a sudden you desire things other than him. And, 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 and you turn from him. That's the problem. It's not just rule breaking. It's evil desire. It's wanting something or someone besides God. God freed them. God freed them miraculously. I mean, the story of the Exodus is so amazing. They are slaves. And by the time God brought a number of plagues on Egypt, they are so ready to free the, the slaves of, of, of Israel that as the people of Israel are leaving Egypt, the Egyptians are piling up like gold, jewels, all their valuables. Just take my stuff and get out of here. God is blessing them tremendously. But now that's a memory and they want something immediate. I can't wait on God. Moses is up on the hill. He's talking to God. Well, you can't wait on that. We need something that's immediate that I can see, that I can trust it like a golden calf. That's what I need. I need something tangible. I don't need an invisible God. Yes, I know what he did in the past, but I need something right now. They desire something real like a golden calf. They desire a thrilling experience. I am bored waiting. They desire a thrilling experience like sleeping with someone they're not married to. They desire something different than God and his plan. They don't like God's plan. Yes, the, the whole Red Sea thing, that was pretty amazing. That was pretty good. But I don't like this part of the plan. We're out wandering in the desert and I'm sick of manna. I'm tired of his provision. So they complain and grumble. I mean, can you relate to that? I can. I can so relate to this. I can easily get my eyes off what God has done for me in Christ. Easily forget all the provision, all of his faithfulness, all of his goodness. Easily I forget that and begin to grumble and complain because I'm not getting my way. It's not going the way I would script life. The entire universe and all of the people therein are not orbiting around me as the center, starting with my wife and others. And so I begin to grumble and I begin to complain. I begin to demand a different story from God. Forgetting that his story has always been good in my life. Always been faithful. Their deliverance from Egypt and God's provision did not ensure they would love or follow him. 
just because God did a miracle and just because everybody hooted and hollered on the day that the Egyptians were all drowned and just because everybody raised their hand at one worship service and said, praise God, we're free, was no guarantee that they would love him moving forward. It was no guarantee that they would follow him. It was no guarantee that they would worship him with gratitude. In fact, most of them didn't please him and many of them turned to idols and immorality. So, he says, Corinthians, you too have deliverance. You've been delivered from all your sins in Christ Jesus. Corinthians, you too have been baptized. Corinthians, you too have the Lord's Supper. You too have signs and symbols of the freeing, delivering power of God. You too are in a body of people. You too are connected to God's people. But if you aren't finding satisfaction and life in him, you are just one more church person that may wander away. And so he says in verse 11, now these things happened to them, all the stuff we just went over, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So let's be instructed. Let's go to school. Let's learn the lesson. Let's listen. Let's have it rest on our hearts in a sober way on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're vulnerable, and that's the point that he wants them to see because that creates or should create a humility and an awareness of our need and a dependence. But we need something much more than a warning. We need something much more than an awareness of our vulnerability. What we really need is confidence in God. That's what they lacked because of themselves. They lacked a confidence in God. So it's, it, we need more than just an awareness that we're vulnerable. We need a confidence that God is faithful, and that's what he gives them. So we are vulnerable, and the second point is God is faithful. That's what he gives them in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Wherever you are tempted today, and we are all tempted, there's no one in the room who is not tempted. We are all tempted. Wherever you are tempted with anger, some of us are tempted with greed, pride, bitterness, substance abuse. Some of us is the opening story I gave are tempted with adultery, pornography, laziness, gluttony, all kinds of selfishness. Whatever your temptations are, Paul says here, God says here, verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Your temptation is not unique. And this is good news. Uh, everybody's special, okay? But your temptation is not unique. You will not be overtaken because no one in the history of the world has ever battled this. And so I'm just overtaken with the flood. It's hopeless. I am going to fall because what I face is different than anyone in the course of the history of the world. He says, no, your temptation starts with no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. It may be severe. It may be intense. It's not unique. It's not unheard of. So that's good to know. That's really good to know. And, and one, of the, one of the things, if you've ever confessed a temptation or a sin to someone else, to a fellow Christian, and we, this is to be a lifestyle. We're to confess our sins one to another. Um, 
But if you've ever done that, and you're thinking, oh man, I really don't want to share this one thing and what I was thinking and what I did because they're going to think, man, you are the, like no one has ever. And then you share that and they say, oh yeah, well I can relate. And you find out, oh, they, they struggle with the same thing. That, that moment where you just find someone else understands that that moment when you realize I am not the only one that is a powerful moment especially if they can say and God has helped me through that God is helping me and and I'm growing in my life's you know that is encouraging to know that someone else has experienced the same thing that is not unique but you know what's even more powerful than someone else having the same temptation is the biblical reality that Jesus had the same temptation. Oh, this is comforting. It's not just that my buddy in the small group, it's not just that my firm, my prayer partner can understand. It's not just that my wife is, is gracious and understanding because she has similar temptations in some way or something. It's not like that's good, but there's something more powerful that Jesus was tempted just as we are, just as we are. Look what Hebrews 4, 15 says. For we do not have a high priest, and speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here is the good news to the Corinthians and to us. Be careful. Wake up. Pay attention so that you do not fall. But know this, your temptation is not uncommon. Others have experienced it. And most of all, Jesus has experienced it. So Jesus sympathizes with you. He understands what you are going for. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not far off. Jesus is not unrelatable. Jesus is not, it's not a sense of, well, he doesn't get it. I mean, he's God. He couldn't get what I'm going through. Oh no, he was tempted in every way, just as we are. The alluring temptations, Jesus knows them. The appealing temptations, the comforting temptations, the exciting temptations, the seductive temptations, the desperate temptations, Jesus knows them and yet he never sinned. That means that he can forgive us when we do sin and he can empower us to turn from sin. God has faced them and Jesus has faced temptation for us and today he faces it with us and he never gave in so that we can be confident that he will provide a power for escape. So in your temptation, know this, Jesus understands. It doesn't mean he says it's okay. He doesn't. He's holy. It's not okay. It's not okay to stay there sinning. Now, temptation itself is not sin, but it's not okay to give in to temptation. But Jesus understands. He sympathizes. He's with us. You're not experiencing anything that's uncommon to man or uncommon to the God man. But, but there's more. He not only understands, he rescues. This is why it's so good. There's a warning here. And I've spent most of the time on it because 12 of 13 verses are warning verses. There's a strong warning here. But oh, hear the note of hope. Jesus understands. Jesus rescues. Jesus forgives, Jesus empowers us to walk with him. He will always provide a way of escape. That's what the passage says. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You're not gonna be overcome. It's not gonna be the devil made me do it, that you had no choice in the matter. But with temptation, he will also provide 
the way of escape. He will provide the way of escape. Always, in every situation, he will provide a way of escape. Well, tell me, what is the way of escape? That's what I, I need the silver bullet. What is it? Well, it will vary in situations, but it will always include this truth. He provides a way of escape. Look to him. He provides a way of escape. The, situ- the, the escape may vary, but it will always include look to Jesus who provides the way of escape. Let me ask you some questions that will help apply this, this passage in our lives. First of all, do you believe that God is for you? This is so important. I mean, your picture of God will determine the trajectory of your Christian life. It will determine the trajectory of your life. You spend your life living out your perception of God. And so it's very important that you understand biblically, do you believe that he is for you, that he is for you? The Israelites said to God, why did you bring us out here to kill us? God was compassionate and loving and rescued them, yet they wanted something else. Why did they want something else? Because they didn't see God as he really is. And so they looked elsewhere for comfort, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for strength, for hope. They wrestled with unbelief, and this is the great battle of the Christian life. Now, not necessarily, um, but some of us as Christians battle with the thought, does God really exist? Is he there? That's a very legitimate doubt that any of us can walk through. It's, it's, uh, it's not true, but it is a temptation that we can all face. But I'm talking about rest, wrestling with unbelief, not that does God exist, but is God good? Is God loving? Is God powerful? Is God present? If you don't believe that God is for you and that he is loving and powerful and present, you will look somewhere else. Every time you will look somewhere else. So we must start by saying, yes, I believe. I'm confused. My experience is difficult. I'm challenged, but I believe the scripture teaches that God is good, that he will provide a way of escape, that he sympathizes with my weaknesses. And so for some of us, we need to start by repenting of unbelief. And saying, Lord, I'm coming back to you and trusting and believing in you. I'm cutting off all other options. That's what it meant to become a Christian to begin with. You are Lord. I'm cutting off all other options. And I want you to change my desires. And your desires will only change when you know God for who he is. When God appears more uh, when God appears more impressive than the temptation, when God appears more fulfilling than the temptation, when God appears more satisfying with the temptation than the temptation, then you'll go to him. Otherwise, you'll go somewhere else every time. We must replace those lies with the truth that he is loving, he is good, he is present, he is all-powerful. We must replace the lies that that's good, even though he forbids it, that's good, that's better. It's never the case. It's never the case. And if you want to know if God is for you, listen to the privileged position we're in. All the Israelites had, not all, this is huge, but all they had was to look back at the Exodus. All they had was deliverance through the Red Sea. You and I have something much greater to look back on. We're grateful for the deliverance from the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, but we have the cross of Jesus Christ to look back on, which says God loves us so much that he became man lived a perfect life, took our sins upon himself, paid for our sins. Not only did he sympathize with our weaknesses, he was innocent and he paid for our weaknesses. He paid the price for our sins. He died in our place for us. 
And then he was buried and raised to life on the third day. So we have some, if, do you wonder if God loves me? You don't have to look any farther than the cross. That is the assurance that God loves you. He could not announce his love. He could not demonstrate his love in any conceivably more powerful way than that. That he would come and become man all the way, come to earth, live a life and suffer for us. God did this, not just another person. God himself did this for us. So do you believe God is for you today? Listen, I I think if you do not believe God is for you, you'll never serve him. You'll never walk with him. You'll never love him. That's a big battle. Is God for me to be clear on that one? Number two, do you see your problem as a desire problem? Some of us are just trying to get moral behavior to avoid this thing, to like do these Christian things we heard you're supposed to do and like to avoid these things we heard you're not supposed to do or we think you're not supposed to do or it looks like some people at the church don't do that. So I probably shouldn't do that. I'm not sure why, but just don't do that because Christians don't do that. So we try to manage rules. Listen, what he's saying here is these things, verse 6, they took place so that you might not have evil desire, that you might not desire evil. We've got to look below rule breaking and rule keeping and discern what is it we desire. The Israel, Israel wanted God to act immediately on their timetable and to demonstrate his presence. And so they built a golden calf and worshiped it. They also desired always Israel, always wanted to be like the surrounding nations. All the other nations have a king. Can't we have a king, God? All the other kids, you know, that was what it was like. Everybody else has a king. So they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be like the people, like all the other nations. You look around them and they're big and strong and life works for them. Not me. So I want to go be like them. And so what do they do? They eat, they drink before a statue and give themselves to sexual immorality, just like all those people do. God wasn't okay with that, nor were they. It did not produce any life in them whatsoever to act like the nations. So they had a desire problem. They needed to desire not to be like others, not to have an immediate answer to what they wanted. They needed to desire God personally and God's providence that God would plan and write the script for their story and that they could trust that even when it didn't go as planned. It's a desire problem. Lord, I desire you. I trust your plans even when they go different than what I would plan. I don't lose interest in God. I can bring my burdens. I can cry out to God. I can ask him, cry out strongly, Lord, rescue but, but I have to have a desire for him. So do you see your problem as a desire problem? Number three, do you see yourself as vulnerable? Do you think you could really fall? Are you feeling comfortable because you know Jesus? You've been baptized. You attend church. You serve. You've got a Christian marriage. You've got Christian parents. You've got some other circumstance. You've never done any like really, really, really bad sin. You know, you might be the most vulnerable person in the room. The person who's done the really, really, really bad sin might be at like less risk than you right now because he or she realizes what it's like to fall and know that they could go right back there. And so they walk with a limp and you walk standing straight. I've got this. Do you realize you're vulnerable? We need to lean into Christ, not coast because of something God did in our past. Some of us are getting older And the glory days were like what God did back when we were in high school or college or our 20s or our 30s. Man, it's risky when you hit 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 to coast, to mail in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of people that get towards the end of the race that end up falling in some way. 
because they didn't see themselves as vulnerable. They thought vulnerability is what happens when you're young and dumb. But now I'm old and dumber if you don't think you're vulnerable. The Israelites' hearts were revealed in times of waiting. When they did not get what they wanted, they complained. When Moses wasn't fast enough, God wasn't fast enough, they built a statue. In times of waiting, what we really want surfaces. If you're waiting right now, realize your vulnerability. I'm an impatient person in so many ways. It can be very small ways. I cannot wait at a restaurant. I've shared that before. I cannot do it. I will not do it, Sam. I am. And, uh, I, you know, and that's a small thing. I mean, it's a very small thing. You may be waiting on something significant. And when you are waiting, you, the temptation surfaces to shortcut, to, to give up on God. He's not going to show up. Look how long it's been. So if you're in a waiting situation in your life, temptation and test are related. And if you're in a time of trial, a time of testing, you may experience heightened temptation. The people we prayed for this morning, that could be a period of heightened temptation for you because you're going through a test. That's what happened with the Israelites. When they were tested, that's when they were tempted. Do you see yourself as vulnerable? So do you know God is for you? Do you see your problem as a desire problem? Do you see yourself as vulnerable? And we'll, we'll finish here. Do you know that there is a way of escape? Do you know that? There's always a way of escape. It starts with knowing God is for you. It starts with seeing the cross. It starts with knowing the gospel. That God not only forgives your sins, but gives you power to walk with him and follow him. That's what the gospel does. So that when we're tempted, we often feel defeated. When we're tempted, we often feel defeated and we look away from God. That's the time to run to God. When we fall a little, we often in shame turn from God and end up falling a lot. When we fall a little, that's the time to run back to God. He is the way of escape. Now, he may provide your escape in any number of ways. He may provide it through prayer, sometimes just turning back to him and not heading down the same path, asking for his help, crying out, waiting on him. Sometimes the Lord may, may provide that as a way of escape. Through prayer. It could be from, as I mentioned earlier, confessing your temptation to a friend. I often find that when I confess a temptation and it comes to the light, whoop, it shrivels. Light kills temptation. Light kills sin. Darkness is a breeding ground for temptation and for sin. So it may be by opening up with someone. It might be asking for prayer from someone. Can you pray for me in this area? It might be asking for counsel. I'm really wrestling with this. Can, to find a mature Christian who can provide you some counsel, some scripture, a pathway to follow so that you don't do the same thing again. It could be through the help of your community group. Really? That, that's for like temptation? Yeah, that's why we're meeting. Yes, yes, you can talk about that. We want that to be a safe area where we can talk about temptation and sin. Sometimes it's best to do that with my same gender because of the sensitivity of perhaps what we're sharing. But yes, that's a place to get help um, through accountability. And let me give you a, a recommendation on accountability. If you have someone with accountability who helps check in on you and see how you're doing and pray for you, find someone that doesn't struggle exactly in the same way that you do. Don't find someone that when you ask for accountability and say, oh, man, I'm really struggling. Oh, man, that's nothing. I did way worse than that lesson. Oh, well, I don't feel so bad. You know, uh, you shouldn't feel bad. That's not the goal. But you should talk to someone who's down the road perhaps a little bit. Sometimes it's just avoiding temptation. 
Sometimes it's not going to the same place, not being with the same people, not doing the same thing. Sometimes the ray of escape is don't go there. That's it. Sometimes the way of escape is just not moving in the same direction and removing the temptation, be it a person or something else. But ultimately, it comes through a change of desire in our heart so that we find satisfaction in God and walking with him is more fulfilling than the alternative. You know when I turn my back on sin? It's when seeing God and walking with him is more appealing than that. When that I see as death and he I see as life. When that I see leading to darkness, depression, despair, and hopelessness, and him I see leading to life and joy and purpose and freedom and a clear conscience. It's when he is more appealing. It's when you see him as he is that you will see sin as it is. The ultimate way of escape is a new desire for God. That's what the text tells us, that we might not desire evil as they did. It comes from cultivating a closer relationship with God daily. It's dependence on God. It's grace-empowered effort every day. It's I'm dependent on you. I'm looking to you. I'm weak today. I'm vulnerable today. I need you, Lord. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's what Jesus said we're to pray all the time. Lead me not into temptation. Why? Because I'm easily led and deliver me from evil. That's the Lord's prayer. Presumption leads to fall. Dependence on Christ leads to escape from temptation and joy and purpose, and fruitfulness. We are vulnerable, but God is faithful. And he right now is opening a way of escape to everyone in the room. You're at a crossroads. There's a temptation that says, go this way. What I want to tell you is that Jesus understands the crossroads. And Jesus always went this way. And he is providing a way of escape for you to go this way as well. Talk to a friend. Look to the Lord. Open it up. Don't allow it to be in darkness. Bring in some help. Bring in some prayer. Bring in some counsel. Um, rely on him all day, regularly, daily, crying out to him. It may involve changing your situation. It may involve changing your friends. It may involve changing any number of situation, circumstances to remove yourself. But ultimately, it is, Lord, cultivate a new desire in me. Let's pray. You've been listening to a Lord, message come from to Grace today Church. And For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. We recognize that we are needy. We recognize that we are broken and we need 